This Parsha podcast is sponsored by Beth Pop in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas of her father, Chana Moshe Ben Shlomo Halevi. May his soul have an ascendancy in heaven. Just a quick note, this podcast is not an original recording. I recorded it two years ago, the first time that we went through the Parsha week by week, the first year of the Parsha podcast. So you'll forgive me for the audio quality not being what you may be used to and uh, the format being slightly different. But please, God, next week we will have a brand new original Parsha podcast, and I look forward to seeing you there. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Va'era. Va'era means, and I appeared. And we pick up right where we left off last week. We're in the middle of a conversation between the Almighty and Moshe. Moshe made his initial meeting with Pharaoh when he requested that the Jewish people be released. And instead of their situation being improved, it actually got worse because Pharaoh said, oh, what are these people starting to dream about the fantasies of leaving? It must be they don't have enough work. So he's told his foreman, now, from now on, you don't give them the hay to produce the cement, the, the mix that they needed for building. Let them do that on their own, but keep the quota where it is. And then the people were just, would, you know, the situation got worse. And Moshe comes over to the mind, he says, what do you mean? You sent me to improve them, improve the situation, and now it got worse. So the last verse of the previous Parsha, Parsha Shmos, is the Almighty's response, and our Parsha continues the response. The beginning of this Parsha is introduction to the actual Exodus, and he starts with talking about the various different names of God. So God's speaking to Moshe, and he says to them, I am God, and I appear to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob with my name, El Shakai. We don't pronounce it the way it's actually written, because it's one of God's names. But my other name of Hashem, I did not appear to them with. So once again, this is the Torah making it abundantly clear that the Almighty, the same entity, has different names because the different names are different modes of of relationship with people. Uh, We know the two most common names are Hashem and Elohim, and they each represent a different way the Almighty can treat us. These names uh, refer specifically uh, to the way the Almighty allows people to understand Him. The word shakai comes from the word dai, which means it's enough, it's sufficient. Which means when a person is wants to understand God, we have a problem, because we're actually engineered in a way to not understand it. The notion of not having any limitations, not being bound by time and space, doesn't jive at all. We cannot imagine what that's like. That's by design. So when we say shakai, which means that our perception of God is limited to the amount that we can possibly absorb, which is, which is for our standard, or for God's standards, obviously it's nothing, but it, it means it's a little bit that we, we can understand enough to know that the Almighty is the power who created everything and controls everything. That's enough for us. But from God's perspective, the master plan, how everything is going to work out in the end, how reward and punishment are exactly meted out in the correct uh, proportions, that we cannot understand unless we appear, Hashem appears to us with the name of Hashem. So the Almighty Moshe, I appear to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, but with El Shakai, i.e. I made big promises and I didn't deliver. None of them got the land of Israel. None of them saw the redemption or are going to see the redemption from uh, from Egypt. And that was okay for them because they knew that the Almighty was in control and he has his plans. And his plans are for him only. And we cannot understand that. That was their relationship with with God vis-a-vis this. Whereas Moshe, now the pending Exodus, the people are going to experience the other uh, relationship with God where God's going to show them. He's going to give them a window into his vantage point and seeing how things are going to work out. Now, we're going to read about the ten plagues uh, this Parsha and the next. This Parsha has seven. The next Parsha has three of them. And for us, these are very impressive plagues, like where we're going to do a lot of magic. And it's really it's really cool. But for God, of course, that's as easy as not doing. Miracles and non-miracles are exactly the same for God's perspective. For us, it's a big deal because we are used to seeing the world from our perspective. And our perspective has very rigid, fixed rules of physics. The rules of physics are just God's most common will. 
in truth. Most often, God wants the rules of physics and nature to reign. But when God chooses otherwise, they're just as easy. His will just changes. So, But we assume that God's most common will is fixed, so miracles are a big deal for us. We're going to get to see the world from God's perspective, where miracles and non-miracles, nature and nature being suspended, are exactly the same. And that is going to be a portal for us to have faith. And that's really the theme of this Parsha, the next Parsha, Exodus in general. Right now we're going to open up our vistas, our uh, our mind to experience a whole different perspective on the world. And then we'll have that perspective actually for a while, because for the duration of the Torah, we're going to be living in this miraculous level where you're going to get food from heaven and you know, we get manna, water from a rock, experience giving the Torah, a lot of really interesting things we're going to see where nature is just suspended and that is going to help us in the forming of our nation to buttress our faith in God and thus when we get to Israel, so to speak, when the Torah is over, now we have, now we realize that it's all the same for God and we, we, we are opening up our eyes to the name Hashem, so to speak, and that is going to build the character profile uh, of our nation. So that's just the first two verses, the different names of God. And then the Almighty tells Moshe again to go to the people and tell them that we're taking them out. And if you look at verse 6 and 7, you'll see again where the, uh, the, we're setting out the, the plan for, for Exodus. Tell the Jewish people, I am God. I will take them out from their suffering of Egypt. I'll save them from their work. I'll redeem them with an outstretched arm with, with many uh, miracles. I'll take them for me for a nation and I will be for them as a God. And you should know that I am the God who takes you out of the land of Egypt. So essentially, uh, we've said this previously, but the theme of the Exodus is that is a gateway to the Jewish people becoming God's nation and establishing a relationship with him. It's not just a means. Pharaoh, already after uh, several plagues, was very much willing to send the people, but the plagues didn't stop. So obviously the plagues were not just merely a means to, to, you know, to humble Pharaoh so the people could leave. It had its own value. And here we see the answer, that the value is, that the whole goal of, of the Exodus is for the Jewish people, that they should be become God's people, they should accept God as their as their master, and thus this is the formation of the nation, and that's the purpose, that's the end goal of uh, of the of the entire Exodus narrative, and of course leads into verse eight to go into the land of, of Israel and to fulfill the pledges given to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Moshe, of course, now is armed with another message. He goes to the people, and the people, of course, are suffering with such backbreaking labor, increased since the previous time, that they couldn't even listen to him because of shortness of breath and of hard of hard work. And this really shows the sorry state of the people at the time. They, Moshe is coming and extending them a at least a dream of a freedom, of liberation, of emancipation from their from their state. They're they're enslaved. And Moshe comes and and he has he has a better a better way. He's offering them at least the the dream of Exodus, and they had become so submitted to Pharaoh that they couldn't even listen to something like that. Mm-hmm. We know uh, that when someone is in a really bad state they usually will cling onto anything that will give them hope. And here Moshe is coming and giving them hope, and they're already beyond helping, so to speak. They, they, they can't even possibly fathom that they'll ever get out of their plight. Now the Torah uh, begins the actual Exodus narrative, but it starts by uh, telling us the lineage, the pedigree of Moshe and Aaron. And it actually interestingly starts off with Reuven, Shimon, and then Levi's children, but it doesn't actually tell us the names of all the rest of the children, because it wants to tell us uh, the uh, the lineage, the ancestry of Moshe and Aaron, and to do that, it starts off with the top, Reuven, Shimon, and then Levi. Levi had, a son, had three sons and a daughter, 
So his three sons are Dershon, Kehas, and Merari. And Kehas had a son, Amram. And Amram is the father of Moshe and Aaron. But it's important here to look. The Torah does stress that uh, who did Amram marry? Amram married Yocheved, who is Levi's daughter and is Amram's aunt. So Levi had uh, three sons and one daughter. His daughter is Yocheved. His grandson, the his son Kehas's son, is Amram, who married uh, Levi's daughter, i.e., his aunt. Now, what's really interesting that once the Torah is going to be given in a few uh, short sections, one of the prohibited marriages, prohibited unions, is a man cannot marry his father's sister. Now, Moshe is the product of such a union, because Moshe's father, Amram, married Mo- married his father, Kehas's sister, Yocheved. And that produced Miriam, Aaron, and Moshe, the leaders of the people. And it's it's surprising, don't you think? Now, the truth is, technically, he's okay. Because the Torah had not yet been given formally. The rules were not in effect. And once the Jewish people, you know, were formed as a nation at the Exodus, everyone thought herself with a clean slate. Moshe's wife, she's Sipporah. She's the daughter of Yisro, of Jethro. She's not part of the Jewish family, the Jewish tribe. But because she joins before the Exodus... That's when the nation was founded. Whoever's part of that group becomes automatically Jewish at the Exodus. But it's surprising, don't you think, that Moshe is the leader of the people, yet in a few months we're going to learn about the prohibited marriages. And one of them is like, a man cannot marry his, his aunt. Well, who do we know that did that? Moshe's father did that. And if Moshe was born 80 years later, once the Torah had already been given, Moshe would be considered a mamzer, a bastard, because someone born for a prohibited union is considered, uh, is not allowed to join the Jewish people. And think about that. So, of course, technically it's not a problem, but you can imagine it doesn't really look good on your resume that, you know, you used to be someone, or, or your, your lineage comes from very, you know, uh, a scandalous, certainly once the Torah has been given, uh, you know, scandalous union. And yet he's the one, him along with his brother and his sister as well, that they're going to be at the forefront of leadership of the people. But I think it's, it's important uh, to stress that, that Moshe is going to be the leader of the people. This is where he really is going to uh, ascend. Uh, yet you could argue that he has some sort of skeletons in his closet by, you know, of course not due to his own actions, but due to his pedigree. And I think that's a good lesson. I think it's, it's, it's a theme we see again and again that great Jewish leaders are ones that can empathize with the people. And if someone is so cookie-cutter perfection, you know, there's nothing wrong, then they could unfortunately lord over the people and they won't be an effective leader. An effective leader is someone who recognizes his own flaws and doesn't have this vision of his own grandeur and therefore can deal with the common folk and understand what they're going through and care and tend for the flock like a great leader. Moshe, we're, we're, the Torah doesn't need to say that. We can actually do the mathematics in our head. We know who Yocheved is. We know who Amram is. We know they got married. That we know. The Torah stresses, no, Moshe, mar- Moshe was the product of Amram who married his aunt. That's forbidden by Torah law. Torah law has not yet been given, but it's important for us to know because that helps build the leadership profile of Moshe. Moshe and Aaron are sent out again to tell Pharaoh and to tell the Jewish people it's happening. And in chapter 7, the Almighty tells Moshe that Aaron's going to be your guide. He's going to be your spokesman. You speak what I'll tell you. Aaron will speak to Pharaoh, will relay that to Pharaoh, and he'll send the Jewish people out of his land. And here's an important verse, verse 3. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will increase my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. He's not going to send you away, and it's going to, you know, this will be a great climax at the Exodus. So, the idea of a hardened heart, a heart is someone's capacity to be impacted. Someone who experiences external stimuli, 
and that affects their behavior. You know, if you see a miracle, that is likely going to shake you up internally because that's going to, uh, your internal understanding of the world is going to be disrupted. And that may prompt you to make changes in your life and your priorities and your decisions. That's normal. But we're told here that Pharaoh, even though he's going to be smitten again and again, and he's going to see miracles that he's not going to be able to explain as much as he tries, he is going to have his heart hardened, i.e. to not become receptive to, to influence and to change, and therefore all the miracles and all the wonders are not going to penetrate, not going to affect his decision-making. And, you know, I think the model is true universally. We experience something externally. It's a cause for inspiration. And once that impacts us, we have now a certain energy that we could transform into real change. Uh, If someone is inspired externally, they make a decision to harness that power and they implement it into their lives and that's how they change. That's that that's essentially the model everywhere. Someone's impressionable, they're impacted, and then they use that to internally change. Pharaoh is someone who will see that he himself, for the first several plagues, is going to have a hard heart. And it's interesting because there's a lot of um, theological problems with this story. Usually the normal rules is, is that the Almighty gives us free will to make our own choices. This is an example. Imanus brings this as an example of where someone's free will is suspended. Pharaoh, had his free will not been tampered with, he would have sent the people out before all ten plagues were done. Now, interestingly, I think the first five of them, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So it wasn't that the Almighty created a hard heart for Pharaoh uh, whereas he would have had a very impressionable heart prior. But what it, me- what it means is, is that the, when someone chooses for themselves a path of always deflecting inspiration, of not being impressed by anything, of always trying to find another solution of how it could have happened or why it happened, it's interesting. Moshe turns all the water into blood, and Pharaoh's like, that's, that's magic. I can do the same thing myself. He, he, you know, he is able to uh, bring out all these frogs that are just causing mayhem in the country, and he tells his sorcerers and necromancers and uh, magicians and soothsayers do the same, and they produce a frog, you know, or two or five. And he's like, oh, see, it's the same. Uh, the third plague, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. The third plague is lice, which they cannot replicate. So now he has clear evidence that this is not sorcery, and he still hardens his heart. It seems like Pharaoh had a history of hard hearts on his own and the Almighty's decision just cemented that. He just said, okay, you have a hard heart? I'm not going to allow that to change. It wasn't like the Almighty gave Pharaoh a hard heart. He just preserved it and didn't allow it to be impacted no matter what. Uh, And that, again, reinforces our position that the goal of Exodus is not a means, but it's an end unto its own. If it was a means, we just want to get Pharaoh to let the Jewish people leave. Okay, if he's convinced, if he signs on, if he really wants to let the people go, let him let the people go. More broadly, this means that the plagues onto their own have their own value because they are going to, like we said, they're going to build the character of faith of the nation. Now, um, tangentially, I had a, um, a great-grandfather that I've spoken about in the past who uh, wrote a lot about the topic of, of suffering, of human suffering. And uh, he would use human suffering as an example of God's external stimuli. So, for example, when you, well, we had prophets, and a prophet would, what was the goal of the prophet? It was to communicate, the goal of the prophet was to communicate with the people what the Almighty wants of them. You know, we're thrown into the world, 
without much of an instruction manual, we're all confused, and comes along the prophet, and he's even called a visionary because he has clarity, and he tells you, okay, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do, like he provides direction. Well, now we don't have any prophets, so how do we have direction from God? So there's a lot of answers to that question. Uh, we could look internally, try to find clarity. Torah is compared to light because it provides clarity. Uh, but there is an idea where human suffering is God prodding us humans to give us direction in what we need to do in life. It's, it's like an example of the Almighty trying to poke and prod. And if we have a heart that's receptive of that, we can use those signals to try to find clarity in what we should try to do with our lives generally, and of course in specific situations as well. Pharaoh, because of his evil and because of the broad need for the miracles to transform the faith of the people, he lost the opportunity to have those external stimuli affect his decision-making. And moreover, Maimonides tells us that when someone loses their free will, they indeed become a vessel for demonstration of, of God's power. Pharaoh, on his own, you know, had he been left to his own decision-making, he would have sent the people out. But because God hardened his heart, it had a national implication for the people, and he himself became an example of the Almighty's prowess over, over the world. So initially they go and they go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, okay, go do some sort of miracle. And Aaron takes this magical staff. He throws it on the ground. It turns into a serpent, which is pretty impressive. And Pharaoh is not at all impressed. They start laughing. What a joke. You know, every school child could do that. He calls his wise men and sorcerers, and they also do that with their incantations. Each one throws his staff into the ground, and it becomes into a serpent. But then Aaron's staff actually swallows their staffs. So there was a qualitative difference between the miracles that Aaron was able to do and the miracles that they were able to do. They, they had some sort of power to turn their staff into what looks like a snake, uh, but Aaron's staff, when it was wood, swallowed their staff, i.e. his miracles totally uh, swept away theirs. And then verse 13 here, critical, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He hardened himself, and he didn't listen. And now we have the first uh, plague where Pharaoh's going to be warned. Uh, he's going to be in the, mo- in the water, uh, uh, in the Nile in the morning. You take the magic staff, and you go to him and say, send the people out. If not, we're going to turn all the water into blood. So the Almighty tells Moshe, tell Aaron to take the staff and to, uh, and to stretch your hand over all the waters of Egypt, all the rivers, all the canals, all the reservoirs, everything, all the water in Egypt, and you strike it, and it'll turn into blood. So what do they do? They go in the morning, and remarkably, they take the staff, strike it over the Nile, Pharaoh's watching, all the people are watching, and instantly, all the water turns into blood, and the Torah stresses that this was actual blood. It wasn't some sort of, it's not like they dropped food coloring into the Nile, it makes it look like blood. They actually turned it into blood, so much so that all the fish died because they can't survive in such conditions. So that's a pretty remarkable thing. Now, there is an important note here. Who was instructed to uh, strike the water was specifically Aaron. And we're told in the commentaries that Moshe has a debt to the water, because when Moshe was a little baby, he was placed in a box that was put on the Nile. So now, to strike the Nile, because Moshe had a personal debt to the Nile, he had to have Aaron do that. And indeed, in the third plague of the lice, you have to strike the, the land, the ground, the earth. Moshe has another debt to the earth, because the earth 
that buried the Egyptian that he killed last week. And therefore, it saved him from, from trouble. So he has a debt to that. Aaron has to strike that. And I think it's a, it's a good lesson for us. You know, we assume that gratitude, appreciation is about, you know, you know, when you, someone does something good for you, you gotta give something back to them. But of course, the water is inanimate and the earth is inanimate. And why should you have, you know, they're not necessarily worthy of, or they, if it was about the receiver of the gratitude, well, the water, you know, their situation is not, even though there was this guy who, who came out with this book, this Japanese guy, he wrote this book that if you talk to water, you say nice things to the water, uh, it'll, it'll, like the crystalline structure will be much nicer. Uh, whereas if you go and you berate it and castigate it and reprimand the water, it'll be all confused and chaotic. Apparently the book was debunked, but who knows? Still, I think there is a powerful lesson for us that Moshe is being educated here. He said, he's being told, you on your own have to learn this lesson regardless of the person who's going to receive it. Regardless of whether or not that's animate or not, it's an internal transformation when someone recognizes good done to them, irrespective of how they express that, or if when they express that it actually matters to the receptor of that, still there's an important lesson to say that I need, that, that really these, this character is about me. And if I ha- learn to be appreciative, I'll become a better person, even though the person, the entity that's receiving my appreciation doesn't benefit or change. And it's also important to know how old is Moshe? Moshe is 80 years old. So this is hearkening back to something that was done 80 years prior when he was a little baby. 80 years prior, he was floating on the water. So now Moshe can't hit the water. Oh no, that's gotta be Aaron. Pretty remarkable. It's a part remarkable uh, lesson for us. That's the first plague. Pharaoh is not impressed at all. He calls over his necromancers and they do the same thing, which is a classic example of what it means to have a hard heart. Pharaoh knows that there is a qualitative difference between all the fish dying and really turning into blood. In fact, the Egyptians had to buy water from the Jews because the Jews had fresh water, the Egyptians did not. So he knew it was different. Uh, how the how the tricksters of Egypt did it, who knows? But they didn't actually turn it into, it didn't change the properties of the liquid. Only this did. But the classic example of how someone resp- how someone with a hard heart responds to such a miracle is like, well, that's no big deal. I could do that myself. That was just some sort of magic. Calls over the necromancers. They take a bowl of water, turn it into blood. Right? They drop a little bit of uh, food coloring in there. And that's it. What's the big deal? I'm not, I'm not at all impressed. I once was talking to someone and I said to him, we were having an argument. I was, I asked him, so what would I need to do to convince you? Like, what do you need to see? We were talking about uh, these, you know, Sinai and, and Exodus. What, what do you need to see? So I said, he says so like, okay, if someone would go to the bayou and would split the bayou, I'll sign up. That's what he tells me. And well, what is that? I'm saying I can't do that. I haven't tried though, but I don't imagine I could. <laughs> but what I'm saying, that is, what he's suggesting is, is that no other piece of evidence will be considered valid. Now, there's a few problems with that. First of all, that means essentially that nothing that you haven't seen yourself is verifiable. So that means that, how do you know the Holocaust happened? If that's the only barometer that we allow, as verifiable, well, I was, you know, I was born in 1986. How am I supposed to know about what happened 50 years before I was born? Is photographic evidence? If I showed him a photograph of the, of the bayou split, would that work? I don't know. He, apparently he wanted to see it himself. It means it, it, it's, it's a little tricky to say I'm only going to believe things that I saw with my own eyes. So obviously there, there has to be some other, you know, some other standards for what we accept as, as, as evidence. But I think furthermore, Suppose Moshe came to Houston and actually split the bayou. Would, would this person actually be impacted? Would they change their life? I think they wouldn't. Yeah, they'll say, I don't know, this is David Copperfield. I don't know what he's yeah. doing. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing, but I know what I do know for sure is that the Statue of Liberty did not move. I don't know how it worked, 
That's what he would actually say. Now, I'm not saying someone should believe everything, but this is an example of a hard heart where whatever evidence is suggested, irrespective of how irritated it is, you'll find some other solution. You'll say, oh, I be- if, if that happens, I'll believe it. And then that might happen. You'll say something else. Maybe something internal. If someone has a hard heart, they're not willing to be impacted. It doesn't matter what the stimulus is. It doesn't matter. If they're just, they're just not going to be impacted. Pharaoh's like, oh, I could do the same thing myself. He calls over his people. They create some red water. And that's it. He's, he found an excuse, an ability to deflect it. And that's enough for him. It's not, the truth doesn't really matter in Pharaoh's mind. So that's the first plague. Um, Hashem says to Moshe, we got another plague here. Go tell Pharaoh, send the people out. If you don't send them out, the whole country is going to be stricken with frogs. There'll be frogs everywhere. In the palace, in the bedroom, in your bed, in the house, in your food, in your, in your ovens, everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. You can't have, you can't open your mouth without frogs coming in. You have frogs prodding in every, you know, in every orifice. Frogs everywhere. Aaron again stretches out his hand over all the water. The frog infestation comes over. And Pharaoh again is not impressed. He does that with his own necromancers, with their own tricks or sorcery, and not impressed. These frauds severely disrupted life, made it very uncomfortable. Um, Pharaoh calls over Moshe and he tells him, I want you to pray to the Almighty to get rid of all the frauds and I'll send the people out, I promise, I'll send them out. Uh, so Moshe tells Pharaoh, Tell me exactly when should I pray that they should leave? Well, when, when should I leave right now? Should I leave tomorrow? Should I leave in a week, in a month? What, what do you want? And they'll, they'll stay in the river. So what does Pharaoh say? So Pharaoh says, I want them to be sent out tomorrow. And Moshe says, okay, you want it tomorrow? They will leave tomorrow and that will teach you that there's no one like the, like the Almighty. That's what he says. Now, it's really surprising. Suppose you had a nuisance that really disrupted your life and the life of all your people. And you're given an offer to say, let them, I'll, they'll be taken away. When do you want them taken away? Shouldn't you say right now? Isn't that the correct answer? <laughs> Why would Pharaoh say he wants them away tomorrow? I think the simplest understanding is, is that Pharaoh did not believe in God. He didn't believe in God. He didn't know how Moshe was doing it. He, he thought maybe Moshe was the most advanced sorcerer out there. Yeah. So he said, oh, Moshe knows, Moshe's asking me, when should I have removed? Obviously, he thinks, he assumes that he'll say right now. Because Moshe somehow knows that there's some other force that's going to sweep away the frauds right now. And therefore, he's kind of trying to augment his, uh, his abilities by doing that kind of shtick to say that, uh, when do you want it away? I'll have it removed. And he knows that it's being removed right away. So I'll say tomorrow, and then I'll show him that it gets removed right away and, and, and uh, I'll disprove him. Again, this is an example of a hard heart. He's not, he's not willing to accept the idea that God exists and has all the powers. And therefore, he's saying, yeah, tomorrow, and then maybe we could disprove it. Of course, Moshe goes and davens and prays to the Almighty. And uh, you look at verse 8. There's an interesting verse in verse 8 here. Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh's presence. Moshe cried out to Hashem concerning the frauds that he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. So those last few words, that he had inflicted upon Pharaoh, seem a little bit superfluous. That's the frauds we're talking about, right? Just say, Moshe should pray about the frauds. Don't say the frauds that he inflicted upon Pharaoh. We know which frauds we're talking about. So the commentary, the Sephorno, one of the Rishonim commentaries, uh, he says that Moshe was very careful with how he prayed. Because Moshe prayed that the Almighty should remove the frauds that he placed to Pharaoh. Had Moshe just prayed to remove the frauds, every single frog on the planet would have been removed, frauds would have gone extinct, and all of us sitting here today would be wondering, what are these frauds? What they look like? That's how powerful Moshe's prayer. So you have to be very careful if you want the frauds and only the frauds that afflicted Pharaoh to be removed, make sure you say that, because the Almighty is taking your prayer very seriously. And you pray to get rid of frauds, that's it. Frauds are extinct, that's it. Goodbye. So Moshe prays to remove the frauds that he placed to Pharaoh, and of course, uh, the next day, they're all gone, but 
Not only that, and they're not gone quite, they just died. So look at verse 9. And, Mo- and the Almighty did like uh, Moshe had asked, and all the frogs died. So what happens when you have millions of frogs? So they piled them up into heaps and heaps, and the, la- and the land stink. Ooh. Now it is, it is important to note that later on there's going to be a very similar plague uh, with the wild animals. And the Torah makes it clear that when Moshe prays to remove the wild animals, they all escape, they all leave. They don't all die like the frogs did. And the reason is, because if you have a bunch of piles and piles of dead frogs, it's not very useful for you. If you have piles and piles of dead animals with hide, with, with leather that you could use, well, that's beneficial. You have just... Think about the taxidermists in, in ancient Egypt, what, what they could have done with all those animals, all these um, exotic animals, what they could have done with them. They actually left, and, but here they died and were piled up on the, on, on, the, uh, on the location. But Pharaoh saw that everything was clear. He got relief, and he made his heart stubborn. Again, this is Pharaoh on his own, and he didn't listen to the Almighty as the Almighty had predicted. And the third plague, and this is interesting, the third plague is not given, uh, it's not warned to Pharaoh, it's done directly, and this is, uh, the plagues are broken down into sets of three. The first two are always warned, and the third is not warned. And of course, the last plague, the death of the firstborn, we'll get to that next week, that is on a class unto its own. The third plague, uh, Moshe, to tell Aaron, to stretch out the staff and, and smite the the earth, the dust of the land, and the whole dust will turn into lice. So they did that. The dust turns into lice. Uh, and Pharaoh calls up his sorcerers, his lice everywhere, do the same. And for the first time, they tried to do it, but they couldn't actually do it. So why couldn't they do it? There's different opinions brought down in the commentaries. One opinion is, is that there's limitations into the sorcery of the sorcerer, the power of the sorcerers, they had no control over, over, over items that were smaller than the size of a barley. Something so small, they can't control it. Number one. Number two, another suggestion given is that ancient sorcerers, they received their power, so to speak, from the ground. They were, had to be connected to the ground. Because there's so much lice everywhere, you couldn't actually stand on the ground, because the ground was transformed into lice everywhere. And therefore, they couldn't draw their power. Where did these sorcerers have this power from? So it seems clear that the sorcerers really did have some sort of power. Of course, it wasn't real, or it wasn't certainly as real, it wasn't as potent as what Moshe is doing, but it, there was something to that. There was some sort of ancient knowledge of certain forces that were able to be harnessed, certain kind of evil forces that were able to be harnessed, uh, that were very powerful. It wasn't airtight, but they had real knowledge and real powers. And the idea is that the Almighty always creates balance. You know, free will, which is the one constant in this world, with the exception of Pharaoh, which is one in a million. But free will has to allow that there is balance on both sides of the equation. If there's no balance, if it's skewed, that's not free will. And therefore, whatever the power of the holiness in the world, drawing man to the soul, drawing man to God, there has to be an equal power of, of impurity drawing a person away. At the time where you have prophecy, you have someone like Moshe in the world, there's a tremendous force towards holiness. In order for it to be balanced, you have to have a corresponding force of impurity that is a real power to create free will. So as history, so to speak, as the holiness uh, kind of degrades, the further we get away from the giants and the titans of yesteryear, the impurity also degrades, and the power of the other side diminishes. At a time where Moshe was around, so the holiness was at its acme, the 
impurity was also at its peak. And how was that manifested? That was manifested by sorcery. This was real. How they did it, who knows? Who knows? But it's interesting that they had to kind of stand on the ground to achieve their power. It's almost as if Moshe was pulling his power from the heavens. They were pulling their power from the grounds because they represent these two opposites, these two opposite powers and two opposite drives in the world. If they're not connected to their source, so to speak, they cannot have their powers. They have, they come from one side, Moshe comes from the other side, everyone in the middle has to make their choices which way they're going uh, to work. Now, throughout history, how exactly that opposing side, you know, what methodologies they're going to use is going to change. So we have the sorcerers of yesteryear. Uh, what happens afterwards? We have idolatry. Idolatry becomes a huge thing. And the idolatry of, idolatry of the ancient times doesn't make any sense to us. The idea of finding a figurine and prostrating yourself before it and pouring it wine and libations, that doesn't make any sense to us at all. Uh, so how do we answer up that we know that cultures actually did this? This, this was the dominant force in the cultures. You know, it's equivalent to watching sports in America. You know, this is what they did. It doesn't make any sense to us at all. It's bizarre. It's strange. And the real reason why it's gone uh, is because the Talmud tells, this is a little striking, the Talmud tells that the men of the Great Assembly, they had a court case. And they said to God, we don't want the evil inclination for idolatry, and we don't want the reward from it. It essentially, this drive for idolatry, it tore apart the Jewish people. The Jewish people, we had a, a civil war, a bloodless civil war, thank God, but we had a civil war where the northern part of Israel and the southern part, which ended up being called Judah, were separated. Why were they separate? Over idolatry. It was such a powerful force, it tore apart the fabric of the nation. It caused the destruction of the first temple. It really destroyed a lot of our uh, our legacy, our heritage. And the prophets, you open up the prophets, the books of the prophets, and you see they're just waging these battles against these other prophets of Baal and all that. They have idols with prophets, real powers that they had, uh, because this was a real entity. So they said, we don't want it, and we want the reward. And the Talmud describes how they managed, in a very surprising way, to destroy the inclination for idolatry. But the Talmud does describe how the force that we have today for lust or whatever desires we have today pale in comparison uh, compared to the desires of yesteryear. The, like the lust that exists today, which to us is like, oh my gosh, so much lust, so much uh, desire in the world, child's play compared to idolatry. The same desire you would have to chew gravel. It didn't exist compared to what they had. There's a, a narrative in the Talmud where one of the rabbis is denigrating Menashe. Menashe is one of the kings who uh, led the Jews to idolatry. And one of the rabbis gets up and starts pontificating about that. I can't believe this. A leader of the people, he's doing idolatry. What's he thinking? <laughs> and that night he has a dream. And Menashe, this dead king, comes to him in a dream and says, if you were there and you had those desires, I guarantee you, you'd take your robe, you'd pull it up so you could run faster to go to the house of idolatry. We, we have no idea what that was even like. And once again, you have the power on one side, you have the, the direct communication, the pipeline from God with the, with the prophets, you have to have a counteracting force on the other side, and that creates the tension. That's, that's where the conflict lies. And you know what? Once the idolatry goes away, you move into the Hellenists and the Sadducees and, of course, uh, the Greek philosophy, which was dominant to us. We read Greek philosophy and we cannot imagine why people wasted so much time studying these things. It's so, it's so, it's so uninspiring to us today, to our culture and our sensibilities. But that was dominant for a thousand years. People were obsessing over these ideas. You open up Maimonides and Maimonides, it's, he's written entire books, Guide to the Perplexed, is a response to Greek philosophy. 
because that was, even in his times, you know, 1,500 years after Aristotle, that was still a very powerful force. And that's where the conflict lies. Today that's gone, and there's new conflicts. And that was a certain battle that existed, and now it's over. And what's the battle today? Who knows? I, I, is it a materialism? Uh, I think it's probably distractionalism or escapism, where today everyone has a phone and they can never think, because if there's ever any window of time that they're not doing anything, they're on the phone. You see people by the red light and they're on the phone, right? So when is there ever any time to try to penetrate that and say, hi, you're living a life, you're going to die, what are you doing? Right? Just asking those questions, you know, don't, you know, there's no time for it. If there's no time for it, how are you ever going to get the message through? How is the message of the Torah of what are you living for? What are you doing with your life? You know, what about your soul? What about your permanent existence? What, what's your plan? And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't happen. How, how are you going to penetrate when the entire world is obsessed with trying to find more ways to distract people from any window of, of, of white space? All the windows of white space have to go. I think it has to be the shower. That's why people love showers. People love taking showers because they have all these ideas in the showers. But then I realize that the people of yesterday used to have those ideas all the time because they were in a perpetual shower because they never had a cell phone. It was like a, it was like a whole life of taking a huge shower. Ironically, they wouldn't take so much showers, but sorry, I went a little diatribe there. <laughs> Either way, the idea is here that there's always going to be uh, a conflict. There's always going to be the side of holiness and the side of impurity. They're going to clash. And that's, that's set. What exactly the arena of that clash is depends on every generation. In the times of Egypt, it was oriented around, uh, around sorcery. And therefore, we see in every one of these instances, Pharaoh's like, whoa, you, you, you turn the staff into the serpent? I do the same. No big deal. I'm not impressed. I got the hard heart. You're, you're, you're not more powerful than I am. Who says you're right and I'm wrong? Okay. So that happens progressively. And then what happens? Comes along the play of lies. You can't do it. And we see, okay, he, he's, this is essentially the equivalent of our friend going to the bayou and seeing the bayou split. That's it. You have no response. And even the source themselves, they say, this is the finger of God. This is something that's not some sort of magic or sorcery. There is grounds for inspiration, but it doesn't actually get a foothold in Pharaoh because of Pharaoh's heart. His heart was strong on his own, on his own right. He didn't heed them just like God predicted. And that brings us to the fourth plague. Hashem says to Moshe, get up in the morning, go to Pharaoh, warn him, send the people out. You don't send them out. I will have swarms of wild animals attacking you in your houses, on the ground. And I will set apart the land of Goshen upon which the people live. And there, there's not going to be any animals going there. This is an interesting theme that's threaded throughout the plagues. Whatever is happening is being highly targeted that's only affecting the Egyptians, not the Jews. So the blood. You have one cup of water. It's being held by the Jew. He gives it to the Egyptian. Well, instantly it turns into blood. Oh, so what, if they bought it, then they got to keep it as water. And you have even this imagery that there's one cup of water. You have two straws in it. One of them is a Jew sucking out water. Another one is the Egyptian sucking out blood. And, and, you know, that, that, that shows that not only does God have all the power, but God's also involved with each individual and knows who, who, who is who and treats them each accordingly. You know, the frogs only attack the Egyptians. The lice only, <coughs> uh, uh, only attacks the, the Egyptians as well. The swarm of beasts, they only go to the Egyptian <coughs> parts of town and not to Goshen. And you have two neighbors. One of them, there's, all these animals, and he's freaking out, and he's hiding, and he runs away. Everywhere he's running, there's more animals. And just absolute abject terror. And his neighbor is totally fine and tranquil. N- nothing coming there, nothing to disrupt him. Uh, Pharaoh again calls Moshe, and he says, go, go, go bring your offerings, do what you want to do, but bring them here in the land. I'll, I'll give you uh, a little bit of freedom within the land of Egypt to bring your offerings that you want to do, uh, Moshe says, well, that's not uh, at all uh, tenable. Why? Because the Egyptians, the animals that we want to offer, sacrifice, are actually 
the deities of the Egyptians. We can't do it over here. Go to the wilderness. Pharaoh says, okay, whatever, I'll send you to the wilderness. Just get rid of all these swarms of animals. Moshe goes and prays. And of course, the swarm of beasts are removed. Not even a single one remained. They all left. Pharaoh didn't have the boon of having all that hide. But Pharaoh made his heart stubborn yet again, didn't send the people out. So it's an interesting kind of transition here. If you notice, the first three plagues are all subterranean. You have the water, which is in in the ground and wells. You have the frogs that came out of the ground, uh, that came out of the Nile. And you have, of course, the lice that are that are in the dust. Whereas the next plague it's all the ones that are at ground level. So you have animals that are not beneath the ground, but at ground level. We're going to read the, about the epidemics, which is the death of the animals, and of course the boils, which is on the people as well. And the next third are all from the heavens. You're going to have, uh, just a quick spoiler alert, you're going to have the, uh, the hail, you're going to have the locust, that swarm above, and you're going to have the darkness, of course. And this is, again... This is not necessarily just a means to let the people go. It's to create faith where the Jewish people see again and again, God controls everything that's below us. God controls everything that's around us. And God, again, controls everything that is above us as well. Again, the fifth plague, Hashem tells Moshe, all the animals are going to die. Again, Hashem distinguishes between the uh, livestock of Israel, livestock of the Egyptians, uh, Pharaoh, uh, his heart became stubborn again, didn't send the people as he pledged. A sixth plague boils. They take uh, this soot, they throw it up in front of Pharaoh. It turns into these boils, this blister erupting boils on animals and beasts. Uh, and even the necromancers, uh, they couldn't even, they were, they were so covered in boils, they couldn't even, couldn't even operate. And here for the first time, we see Hashem strengthen the heart of Pharaoh and he did not uh, heed them. So this is the first time after five plagues where Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The sixth time was the charm for Pharaoh. But the Almighty says, no, 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 no. You want to send them out and your heart finally is impacted. It, it, the blow was so severe. It doesn't matter. I'm going to harden your heart because there is a mission over here. And then we get to the seventh plague. And that's the final plague of this week's Parsha. And that's the plague of hail. And it's interesting here. There's a very, uh, like a preamble to this plague. Hashem spoke to Moshe, arise early in the morning, go to Pharaoh, tell him, send them out. For this time I shall send all my plagues against your heart, upon your servants and your people, so that you shall know that there is none like me in the world. Again, part of the way the Jewish people are educated is when they see Pharaoh humbled, they can transfer their allegiance that they previously had for Pharaoh to God. It's important that Pharaoh knows that I am God. When you see who you assume previously had all the powers, that you see there, there's a step beyond that. That even Pharaoh with all his powers and all his necromancers and all the foremen, everyone who, who was part of that network, you see that they are controlled indeed by a higher power that enables you to transfer your allegiance from Pharaoh to God. And then he tells him there's going to be a rain and a very heavy hail, something never seen before from the time Egypt was found until today. And now he gives him advice. Verse 19, gather in your livestock and everything you have in the field, all the people, animals that are found in the field, everything that's not gathered out uh, from the outside, the hail will kill them. And what happens? So verse 20 tells us, whoever among the servants of Pharaoh feared the word of God, chased his servants and livestock to the houses. And whoever did not take the word of God to heart, he left his servants and livestock in the field. So some of Pharaoh's people followed Moshe's advice, and some said, what do you mean? Look at the, look how nice it is outside. Look at the forecast. Look at the, you know, the, the weather forecast for the next couple of days is great. 72 degrees, not a chance of, you know, no, zero chance of any precipitation. I'm going to leave everyone out. I'm not going to heed to that. So we see, and by the way, how does it describe that? On one hand, you have people that fear God. On the other hand, you have people that do not take the word of God to heart. What it means to fear God, it means to take the word of God to heart. It means to just be impacted by it, to make, to, to be serious, to notice things, you know, to, to, to make it real. 
And that's considered fear of God. Fear of God means where the relationship between man and God is real. You realize that there's implications for God and your behavior, and you should act accordingly. Some of Pharaoh's people, they feared God, and therefore it was just, it wasn't spiritual. Why were they motivated to do that? They were motivated because they wanted their livestock and all their property to be salvaged. That was their motivation. That's called fear of God. Fear of God is that you act in a way that's in your best interest because of a reality that you know to be true. That's, that's all it means. These people weren't necessarily spiritually oriented. They cared about their livestock, but they knew that Moshe has been accurate in the past. He says it's going to happen, and therefore they just behaved in a way that they knew was most prudent for their financial concerns. Someone who fears God is someone who believes in God and acts accordingly. That's it. So they took their stuff inside. Hashem tells Moshe, stretch out your hand. This is going to be hail over the land of Egypt. Uh, what is the nature of this hail? So there was a hail and fire flaming amid the hail. Very heavy, such as never seen before in the entire land of Egypt. So this is not just regular hail or even big blocks of ice hail. This is actually fire ensconced in ice. It's a marriage of two opposites. Uh, and I think there's a very powerful lesson here is, we know that water and ice, they don't go together. Uh, they when One of them has to triumph because they're opposites. Yet here we see that there's hail and fire flaming amid the hail, and that's coming together because in truth, the only reason why fire and hail are opposite is because that's God's most common will. That's the rules of nature, the rules of physics, which is God's most often what his desired will is. Here, he's showing us that that is just God's most desired will. When you see fire and ice working together, what that means is that the rules are somewhat malleable. Why? Because the rules are not really rules, they're just God's will. God has a most often will, and sometimes he has a less common will. Maybe it only shows up once in history. But normally he wants this, and now he doesn't want that. But what does that show you? It's not just, oh, God did did this miracle. It also shows you that the rest of the time is also God's handiwork. That's a remarkable lesson. You see this episode, you're like, wow, this episode itself is remarkable. Fire, ice are coexisting. But really, this shows you that even the rest of the time when the fire and ice are not coexisting, that's only because God wants it to not coexist, and therefore it's his decision. That's a remarkable lesson that the way Nachmanis describes it, he says that the revealed miracles, things that are out of the ordinary, they shed light on the hidden miracles. Everything that happens is a miracle. The only question is, is it hidden? Because it's nature. It happens all the time. We get used to it. Or is it not hidden? Is it revealed? Because it's out of the ordinary. It's a miracle. But they're both miracles because they're both the will of God. The fact that your heart pumps 89,000 times a day without any battery replacement. Like, how is that not a miracle? The reason why it's not a miracle is because it is a miracle. It's just a hidden miracle. It's a miracle that we got accustomed to. We got used to it. We got acculturated to it. And therefore, we're callous to it. We take it for granted. Something out of the ordinary, splitting the body. What's more impressive? Let me ask you a question. The fact that your heart can pump for 90 years without being replaced, any batteries, anything like that. Is that more impressive or splitting water in a bayou? Of course, the heart is more impressive. So how come our old friend is not impressed by the fact that his heart is pumping? Because that's a hidden miracle. But every once in a while, the money does a revealed miracle that actually, in its own right, is very momentous, but it actually sheds light on everything else and shows that God is really behind it all, the hidden and revealed miracles as one. If the people were blind, God forbid, right? All of us were all blind and we got vision overnight, how dramatic would that be? That would be the greatest miracle ever. Now the fact that we got we got vision the whole our whole life, we got vision. How is that less? It's only less because that's just the human nature. Human nature is we take things for granted. No matter how wonderful the Almighty nature for us, we'll take it for granted. And the goal of this thing is to just upend everything. Everything that we take for granted, everything we assume to be fixed is not fixed. Because all that is just God's most common will. And you see God changing the pattern a little bit, and suddenly you realize that, no, that's God's will, this is God's will, they're both miracles, one's hidden, one's revealed, 
but this is an eye-opening experience to see when something is revealed and that kind of shakes you up and you realize that the rules don't, you know, there's no rules, it's just God's will. So we have the plague of hail, we got the fire and the ice working together, it strikes the land of Egypt, everything that was left out, uh, outdoors, that was all destroyed, land of Goshen is entirely untouched. Pharaoh, of course, he comes to Moshe and Aaron, this time I really sinned, Shem is the righteous one, we're wicked, pray, let the Almighty stop this. So Moshe says, I'm going to leave the city, I'm going to pray, everything will stop. And Moshe goes up to Pharaoh from the city, stretches out his hands to praise, and everything ceases. Uh, Pharaoh saw everything stopped, all the hail, all the fire, all the thunder, and he uh, made his heart stubborn. So again, Pharaoh is contributing to this, and he doesn't send the people out. And we'll see uh, next week that there's going to be three more plagues, of course, reaching a crescendo with the plague of the death of the firstborn, and the people are going to get ready and going to begin their exodus and begin their wonderful journey uh, for 40 years and the rest of the Torah. Very exciting. Look forward to next week. Yes.